part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Chapter 29, uh, many of you would maybe even be able to quote Jeremiah 29:11 by heart. Even if you couldn't do it word for word, you'd be able to kind of get the nuance of it and kind of the basic premise of it. Because it's a great promise. And you know, that's what we do in times of great need. We, we go to the Word and we seek out something that will give us comfort. And, and a lot of times that comfort comes straight from the promises that God has given us. And there's a lot of great promises in there. I know that a lot of people will look at like Romans 8.28 and they'll say, Hey, even though I'm going through a really hard and difficult situation, God said He's going to work this for good. And we'll go to another place and maybe Philippians 4.13, another one that we really take out of context of what Paul was writing all the time. And we try to make it applicable to us standing at the plate and maybe, okay, I can hit this home run in Christ's name. It really doesn't mean that, but, you know, we'll use it like that and we'll kind of say, okay, I can do all things through Christ who's going to give me strength. And really Paul had a whole different kind of underlying meaning for that. Uh, he, he wasn't up at the plate. He was in, actually in prison. <laughs> kind of takes on a whole different con- context when you begin to, to look at how he said that. But, but that's our norm. It, even Psalms 23, you know, is one of those precious things. I've done well over 400 funerals. And I always, every funeral that I ever do, I, I end with Psalm 23. And even the heaviness and, the, you know, the weight of the loss that they've just experienced, it's amazing. I start reading Psalms 23, and it's almost like, the weight is lifted a little bit, at least for that moment, that they find comfort in those great promises of God. Well, folks, Jeremiah 29, 11 is one of those fixtures of our mind and, and that we just kind of read and we're going, okay, God's going to take this kind of terrible predicament that we're in, this heavy place that we're in, and we know that he's going to work it for good. Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. Now, that's from the NIV, and I do that purposely because we, a lot of people, when they memorize it, they want to memorize it for there because it has the word prosper in it. And as Americans, as humans, we kind of like that word prosper. For the rest of the morning, I'm going to go back to kind of my favorite version, the ESV, and I really think it does a great rendering of that. But I read this because this is probably the one that maybe you have memorized, and I know it's familiar But it's amazing how we look at that and we're going, okay, man, this is a go-to verse. This is the one that in hopeless situations we try to find some hope. But have you ever known the backstory to Jeremiah 29? Have you ever known, as Paul Harvey, you remember Paul Harvey? I just dated myself amazingly. Uh, (laughs) The older crowd is going, yeah, yeah, we haven't heard that name in a long time. Paul Harvey would always tell the rest of the story. But have you ever heard the rest of the story of Jeremiah 29:11? As I always stress to you, we always want to take every scripture in context. We always want to make sure that we understand not just the little bit that was spoken in that one verse, but that we understand what was really going on so that we can see the fullness of it. And here's what we will do. Oftentimes, folks, you will think that, okay, man, that just changed the whole context of that. But when it changes the context, I, I promise you, it doesn't lighten the promise. It it gets it deeper. It makes it even that much more wonderful. And I pray that that's what we will find today as we look at this. Because when we look at this greater truth of what God is really saying in the midst of a time of great suffering, this is what we need to pass on to our children. It's just one of those cold, hard realities that 
we would wish that no suffering would ever come to our kids. We're amazing pillow throwers, is what I call it. We see a circumstance there, and so we get this emotional pillow, we get this spiritual pillow, we get whatever pillow, and as our kid is about to fall, we throw it underneath there so that it lightens fall. I get that. I have done that with my girls. I want only the best. I would love for them to kind of live a pain-free life. I want them to have pain-free marriages. I want them to have pain-free, and when they start having children, you know, pain-free parenting. Unfortunately, (laughs) I've not noticed that that's the world that we live in. That even in the most godly of marriages, there's times of stress. Amen? That even in the most godly of families, where you love your kids, you love your kids amazingly, they're still sometimes hurt. So what we need is not just kind of the fairy tale, okay, I hope the Bible says this. What we need is the reality, hey, I'm a real person in a real world with a real marriage, with a real family, with real hurts, really high times, but sometimes really low times. And I need the constancy of God's word and his promise to be able to take me through the high points in the mountains, but also the valleys. So that's the great thing about God's word. It doesn't sugarcoat it. If he really wanted his word to reflect nothing but just rainbows and, and happiness and the occasional unicorn, God could have done that. He could have just kind of put some fantasy land, some myth out there, and so that we could just feel good. But it's amazing how... The Bible is utterly honest and talks about the failures of people as much as it does the victories of people. It talks about how God sometimes brings judgment and not just love. His love is always, his judgment is always motivated by his love. But but we see that and we see these times and we're going, well, I don't really like that. I heard a person one time said, you know, I don't read the Old Testament. I said, really, why not? And he said, well, just that God was not the good God. I'm going, okay, guys, this is not Wizard of Oz. This is not the bad witch, and this is the good witch. This is how it works. It's the same God. He never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. What we see in the Old Testament is a God who who is pointing to our need for Christ. What we see in the New Testament is the fulfillment of Christ and how we can live. It's the same God. But we see one post are pre-Christ, and we see a God post-Christ, the same God, but it's all reflecting back to our need for Christ. He's pointing us to what Christ would come and do. In the New Testament, we get to the joy of saying, okay, now that Christ has come, how do we live? And it does change everything. The backstory, the rest of the story, Jeremiah 29, 11, the time is approximately about 597 B.C., before Christ, okay, before Christ comes on, on the scene, this about 600 years before that happens. Old Testament, God's chosen people, the Israelites. By this time, the Israelites have actually become two nations, a northern nation, a southern nation. And they've had times of great blessing. Uh, they've built a city called Jerusalem. And it really is kind of the, you know, kind of the, the shining star of the world because they come there to worship. Uh, God has great favor upon the people and the Jews. And, uh, and yet the people, the Jewish people, were, were kind of like us. They were kind of hot and cold. There were times that they really were obedient to God and really worshipped Him well. And there were times they said, you know, we kind of want to do it our way. And so they had these ups and downs. They were fickle. You couldn't really tell. When God blessed them and they started having those blessings, all of a sudden there, there's, there's times that God would bless and then they'd get full of themselves. 
Guys, you can go back to that map. The time that we find this, uh, you were right. Uh, you see kind of all the arrows kind of coming out of there. I, I know it's not great detail in this high-definition world. I almost didn't put this up there, but it's the only one I could really find that kind of showed that at different times, God allowed other nations to come in and take the, the people of Israel, the Jewish people, and take them back to another country. The two most prominent times were the Assyrians and the Babylonians. This time it's the Babylonians. And, and they would take them back to their, if you see that uh, kind of yellowish green on the bottom, that's the one that we're talking about here. The Babylonians take the Jewish people into captivity. Now again, think about it. That wouldn't just be some foreign nation coming to America and taking us over. It would then be coming in, destroying America, destroying our cities, and then taking us back to kind of be, you know, in a time of exile, a time of slavery back in, the home, in their home country. So not only do we have, you know, are we missing home, but we're wondering if there's ever going to be a home to go back to. I mean, can you imagine that? E- eons of generations that you can go back and say, yeah, my, my granddaddy's granddaddy granddaddy was a farmer in Virginia. And, and this is your home and you're an American. And now all your identity is kind of gone because uh, you're wondering if you're ever going to be able to go back to Jerusalem. You're wondering if you're ever going to go back and be reinstated as a country and have this identity. That's, what we find, that's where we find ourselves in Jeremiah 29, 11, a time of uh, where judgment has come. Now, let me say this. I'm going to say it probably two or three times because I'm going to be very clear. Not all suffering comes directly because of our sin. Did everybody hear that? There are times, and this is one of those times, that God's judgment and his discipline among the people comes because of their sin. This is one of those times that they just they turned away from God and, and really not to punish them. We don't see this as punishment, but we see this as discipline for one person, purpose, and that is to bring them into a restored relationship with holy God. And there will be times in our lives when we have been disobedient, we have been wayward, and God will bring, not punishment, especially theologically for the Christian. He doesn't bring punishment. That's already been taken care of by Jesus Christ. But he will bring discipline, just like it says in Hebrews, that a good father disciplines his children for the purpose of just making them pay for their sins. No, to bring them back into restored newness of life and restoration to the life that he always wanted them to have. It's always God's purpose. And it was his purpose here. He's not kind of bringing them over to the Babylonians and saying, okay, you got what you deserve. In a way, you could look at it that way, but he said, look, your heads are so, and your hearts are so bent against me right now, the only way that you're going to turn your heart and soften your hard hearts back toward me is if something really stark happens. And that's the setting of this. And so Jeremiah, the prophet, comes up and he begins to talk about how God has brought this by sword, famine, and captivity. And at this time of suffering, there were some people that raised up among the Jewish people. They called themselves prophets. They were not the prophets of God. They actually were false prophets. And they began to tell a story that everything is going to be okay. Initially, how do you think the people kind of react to that? Good. A voice of hope. A light in the darkness. The problem with this is that it wasn't the truth. Look what happens. Jeremiah 29, look at verses 8 and 9. 
these false prophets, they, they rise up and they said, hey, this captivity thing, it's about to be over. Jerusalem, man, you might as well get your bus ticket right now because we're going to be going back to Jerusalem. God is going to restore all this and it's going to happen in days or weeks or months. I mean, go ahead and pack and get ready. Look what happens in verse 8 and 9. For thus says who? The God of Israel. He said, okay, here's one voice. And it says, man, this is going to be easy. Get your bus ticket, pack your bags. We're about to go back and go to to Jerusalem, and you're going to be restored as a people. He says, but here's what the Lord says. Do Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. You see what happened? Some people rose up. Like there's always somebody in the group says, man, I don't think it's going to be that bad. I think God's going to do this. And they kind of start speaking for God without God speaking through them. It can happen to a pastor. It can happen to a a parent. It can happen to, to anybody. Why? Because we want to be kind of optimistic. We want to kind of bring some daylight to this darkness. Well, that's what some people did. They said, look, get your pack. Get ready to go. And then God comes back in verse 8 and 9 and he says, look, time out, guys. Here's what the Lord says. Here's what I say. These people that are saying you're going to be out of here in just a couple of moments, they're lying. That's not what's going to happen. You're going to be here for a while. Well, that presented a dilemma before the people. Have you ever been in that spiritual dilemma where God's word seems to be leaning one way and your heart, your emotions, and maybe even people that really like you, a best friend, speaks into your life and kind of gets you leaning the other way? Have you ever found it really hard to speak truth into people's lives that you love? The Bible tells us to speak truth in love, not just the love part. But sometimes we think almost in this false sense of, you know, God that, Man, I don't want to tell them the reality that, man, this is really a bad place in their marriage. This is really hard for their kids. That somehow, because we don't pronounce that, maybe we just talk really, you know, soft and nice about it, that that marriage or the parenting challenge or whatever it is is going to get better. Two voices. One, the voice of the false prophets. Pack your bags, get ready to leave. The other, the voice of sovereign God. They're lying There's another story here. Don't pack your bags. Which voice do you want to believe? Because I promise you guys, in the world that we live, there will always be another voice. There will will always be God's voice. There will always be God's voice. But there will always be another voice. Go back all the way to the very beginning in the garden. God's voice. Eat from any tree you want to. Any tree. Just don't eat from this tree. But there was another voice. Hey, God's holding out on you. Eat from this tree. There will always be another voice. Your children will grow up and there will always be another voice. It may be the culture. It may be society. It may be a best friend. It may even be somebody who's a Christian with good intentions that just doesn't want to hurt feelings. There will always be another voice. People at first, they, they were really, they were listening to these false promises because when we get in these times of great difficulty, what do we want? We want escape. And, and God didn't promise them escape. Look what happens in verse 10. 
Now, God is still speaking. What do you see as the first five words there? Go ahead and say it out loud. For thus says, we see this phrase repeatedly in Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah is writing, but he says, I want you to know that this isn't coming from the false prophets. This isn't coming from me, even though I am a true prophet of God. This is coming from God himself. What does God say? Verse 10. When 70 years are complete for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Do you get what happened? False prophets. Buy your tickets. Tickets right here. Bus leaving for Jerusalem tomorrow. Pack your bags. God's voice. 70 years. And which one in your gut do you want to believe? Do you want to escape? Or do you want to endure? Because those are the two options. The, the false prophets, escape, escape. God, endure. Enduring stinks, doesn't it? Can we say that? If we really had, I mean, be honest with yourself. Escape or endure, which one would you pick? Let me load that question a little bit. For your children, escape or endure, which one would you pick? Guilty as charged. This is hard stuff, guys. But God is sufficient for it. He doesn't say, man, I just want to see how tough you are. He knows how weak I am. It's not a a challenge to see how tough I am. He knows how weak I am. He knew how the nation of Israel was weak. He has seen them repeatedly turn against him time after time after time. Moses goes up to get the Ten Commandments. He goes up to spend some time directly with God. He comes back down. What have they done in just a matter of a short time? Build a golden calf. These are not the most reliable people, okay? (laughs) These are not the people that said, man... We were good for the first 40 years, but, you know, after that, we got a little bit weak. Man, days later sometimes, sometimes hours later, they showed their vulnerability to the situation around them. That's us. Here's the the life lesson that we need to teach our, our, our children, okay? We can trust God when he calls us to endure when what we really want to do is escape. We can trust God. We can't trust ourselves. We can't trust the situation. We can't trust life. But we can trust God when he calls us to endure. Will there be times of escape? Yes, there's going to be times that God really instantly takes something away. I've seen miracles left and right. People who had cancer, they go in for the next appointment so they can really get kind of a, a scope of how we're going to attack that, and the cancer's gone. And you sit there and go, okay, the doctor's going, okay, I can't explain this. And I said, well, I, I can't. If you just kind of want to give me about five minutes, I can explain it to you real easily. And we prayed and we laid hands on this person. We just covered them with prayer, knowing that God may keep the cancer or that may God eradicate that cancer. But we left it up to the will of God. And so we know that God took that cancer away. There will be times of escape. I mean, he did that. Judgment comes upon the people. God goes to Noah. Noah, build an ark. The ark is a form of escape. 
of the judgment that was coming. We see that throughout the Old Testament. All pictures of what Christ ultimately was going to do. Every one of these pictures of what Christ ultimately was going to do. Christ ultimately is our escape. But he was years in coming. Look what happens here. He tells them to not only endure this situation. There's one thing that God said, okay, look, man, I know you want to escape, but I'm going to call you to endure. He goes even a step farther. And some will really find this hard, especially when it comes to our children. He calls you not only to endure, but there will be times in your life and in your children's life that he will call you to embrace it. And it's one thing. Endure is like, you know, holding your nose and go, okay, I'm, I'm going to go through this. doesn't mean you like the situation, but to embrace it, man. God, you're, you're asking way too much at this point. But look what happens. Let's go back to, to what happens in Jeremiah 29. Let's get a scriptural basis for this. Is he really telling them to embrace that they're in this captivity, that they're exiled into this foreign land? Verse 4, 5, 6, and 7. What's the first five words, or the first four words? That says the Lord, okay? Do you you see that kind of as a common theme here? (laughs) Jeremiah goes, man, I'm not speaking for my own. I'm not a false prophet. This isn't what I would like. This is what the Lord has told me. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, what did God just do in verse 4? You can say it out loud if he claimed responsibility. He kind of took ownership of it. He said, guys, this wasn't just, hey, the wind started blowing in this direction, and so now I'm, going to, I'm coming up with a plan to kind of counteract the wind blowing that way. He said, I have sent you there. This is part of his judgment. We're going, okay, my goodness, this kind of changes things. And look what he tells them to do. Verse 5, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give to your daughters, uh, give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. This is not a time of surviving. This is actually a time of thriving. Counterintuitive to anything that we ever think about when it comes to suffering in our life. Verse 7. This is the real kicker. Where are they? Babylon. Did they like the Babylonians? They're kind of even really mad at God. You know, okay, God, I, I know it's, you can bring judgment, but not the Babylonians. They're worse than we are. And look what he says in verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For it's in its welfare you will find your welfare. I'm so glad you didn't bring stones. Is that not the most counterintuitive thing? It's one thing if God said this to us. Don't say it to my children. Y'all think Miss Carly is so nice? She is mama bear all over. She's nice. Don't mess with the kids. You will see a whole other side of that woman. And isn't that true of all of us? We love our kids. 
So it's one thing if God says, okay, you do this, but it's a whole other thing if he calls our children into a time of suffering and we're going, man, this isn't good anymore. You mean I'm actually to pray for the welfare of the people that I'm kind of in exile and in captivity to? Folks, that's crazy. How, how do we even do that? Let me give you three promises or, or three things of, of how to do that, how we can trust in a, in a time when it doesn't seem like, but number one, we don't agree with it. Nowhere God is asking, agree with this. Nowhere does he say, we're taking a vote. Do you want the bus tomorrow to go back to Jerusalem or do you want to stay here for 70 years? He never puts it up for a vote. He says, this is what's going to happen. How do we stay faithful? How do we trust God in that situation? Quickly, three things. Number one, trust the plans of God. But all this comes straight out of that verse that we love so much. Jeremiah 29, 11. Look at the first part of Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you. Who's the I? God. I know the plans that I have for you. God has never left his sovereignty. He's never said, okay, you're a victim of of the wind blowing left and right. You're a victim of circumstances. He said, I am sovereign God. I am over you. And nothing happens without at least my allowance. He said, I'm in total control here. I know the plans I have you, declares the Lord. In a sea of voices that cried out for escape, he says, I want you to endure. Not only do I want you to endure, I actually want you to embrace this. There's always going to be that voice. And a lot of times, folks, that voice is going to come from within. Daddy's, a lot of times it's going to be a daddy's head. Mama, sometimes it's going to be a mama's heart. And that other voice, it's going to be sincere. It's going to be genuine. It says, man, I, I don't want to endure this. I want to escape from this. And Lord, that's just, a, that's, it's, it's, I actually am a little offended that you would tell me to embrace this. How do we trust God? We trust his plans. He called Joseph to endure. Joseph I mean, if, if I'm anybody in the Old Testament, I don't think I really want to be Joseph because Joseph, for the most part, keeps on doing the right thing over and over and he always gets the short end of the stick. That woman's approaching me. I'm going to flee because this is the right thing to do when somebody's sexually approaching you. You run the other way. And yet, who gets thrown in prison? Joseph. Continually, he does kind of the right thing and he always gets the short end of the stick. And it's not until he dies that we read in Genesis 50:20 again, where it says, these things were meant for evil, but I've used them for good. I mean, if I'm living my life, if I'm Joseph, I'm going, okay, you had to wait till I was dead. You had to wait till the, all the way to the end before you could see the bigger picture. Because what was the bigger picture there? God had made a covenant with the people of Israel. And he said, I'm one day going to bring to you a savior. And yet there was famine in the land. And had Joseph, had God not ordained and purposed for Joseph to be where he was at that time of history, where he was second in command over all the food, his family won't survive, that lineage dies, and the promise of God is gone. Now again, that wasn't going to happen. Why? Because God is faithful to his promises. But look like evil God used for good. And the very thing that we're trying to teach our kids about Christ being from the very beginning and this whole three-year cycle of teaching our kids about Christ in every passage of the Bible, in every book of the Bible, folks, that's what Joseph, I think in the back of his mind, God may have given him a little bit of insight to that. 
So we trust God. The key words here, I know the plans that I have you. In fact, if you go back to the original Hebrew, if you take almost like a straight translation, he uses the word I twice. I, I know. Kind of like when God would say, I am. Remember, Moses asked, who should I tell he's going to send him? Just tell him I am. That's sufficient. That will get you in the door. And here he says, I know the plans. Second part, not only can we trust God's plans, but his purposes. Look at the, the rest of Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil. Again, I think this stings a little bit because the welfare for the Jewish people was 70 more years of captivity. 70 more years that they're going to be not in Jerusalem, they're going to be in a foreign land as exiles. Not what they wanted to hear. How can this be their welfare? Because here, here's the, the predicament, guys. Their hearts were so hard that they rebelled against God. This wasn't... I mean, have you ever had to deal with a really rebellious child that it wasn't just, okay, say you're sorry, and that magically... Gave them a new heart. Have you ever really had a time when your child got really stubborn? And it wasn't just a little, don't do that. Uh, go over there and sit for a little while and time out. Or whatever it might have been. You know, that it wasn't just that. I mean, that kid looks over you like, you know, head spinning around, like exorcist, and, and goes, not today, mama. You know, and you're going, okay, this is scary. <laughs> That's where Israel was, guys. That's where Israel was. They weren't just like, you know, they just kind of fallen a little bit off and all they needed was kind of a nudge back in the right direction. Man, they just had hard hearts. And he says, okay, you're going to stay here for 70 years because ultimately my big aim is for you to be restored. And so your hearts need to melt and our hearts need to get a, a different place. From the human, human vantage point, folks, this did not look good. But from God's vantage point, it had a bigger purpose. And here's the kicker. You're either going to like this and receive it in your heart and your mind, or you're going to reject this. I'm just telling you up front. Ultimately, everything that God does, allows whether his permissive will, whether it's his uh, command, commanded will, is for his glory. He loves you. He gave his son to die for you. But you are not the center of all of God's attention. You're not. He doesn't say, okay, I'm going to do this for Bobby's glory. You know how God operates in my life? His desire is always, his purpose is always his glory. And some people can really get offended. You know, I think God is all about me. No, God is all about God. But he loves you. And he gave the, his only son to die for you. So, so his love is extreme. But when it comes down to, okay, am I going to do this so that Bobby can be happy or for the glory of God? It's a no winner. He's always going to opt for his glory over my temporary happiness. And that is really offensive. It's really discouraging to a lot of people. God is not saying here, I don't love you. He's not saying, I don't care for what happens to you. He is not saying that you don't matter to me. What he is saying is, my glory is priority. And that's a hard pill to swallow. But it's biblical. I love you enough to teach you the truth and see what just simply reflect what God is saying here. And yet I know that it's so counterintuitive and it's countercultural. Because we have made God a God who's all about me 
Trust in the plans of God. Trust in the purpose of God. Trust in the promises of God. Even in this dark day, God gave them a promise. Look at the last part of Jeremiah 29, 11, and then we'll close. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you what? A future and a hope. Here's what Satan would love for you never to see. God's end game for you, your family, and your children. He wants you to see the suffering. He wants you to see the difficulty. He doesn't want you to see the end game. Satan did not want Joseph to see the end game. That after he was buried, that God would write, hey, this was meant for evil, but I've used it for good. There's eventually going to be a Savior that is born in this lineage, just as I covenant with you, just as I promised you. In the midst of suffering, promises seem to fade. They, they seem to, to kind of get wishy-washy. Like, okay, man, that promise isn't coming true today. And I promise you guys, more so God promises you that his God promises will be true. What did he promise? Number one, the promise of his presence. Look at verse 12 and 13 real quick. Then you will call upon me and come to me and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. What's he saying? Look, you acknowledge that I'm there. You seek me out. I promise you. I promise you, you will find me. A promise of his presence. Also a promise of a home. Go down to verse 14. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place that I sent you into exile. I mean, what did the Jewish people really want? Home. What does he promise in verse 14? He says, eventually, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring you from all these exiled places, and you're going to have a home again. That's why it was a really big deal, like back in the 1940s when Israel came back and kind of restored that land. That's why Israel is kind of, uh, you notice, it's always in the news. It's always kind of a pivotal place. God keeps his promises, guys. The promise of joy. Look at, go over to chapter 31, verse 13. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young man... And the old shall be merry, and I will turn their mourning into joy, and I will comfort them, and I will give them gladness for sorrow. He says, look, man, this hard time, this difficulty, this suffering, it is not forever. There's a day that your suffering will be turned into dancing. Then one last promise. It's the biggest promise of all. Chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, and I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And you read the next two verses, and here's what he says, basically, my paraphrase, and so, so give me some liberty here. Through all of this, in verses 32 and 33, he says, okay, I'm going to establish in verse 31 this new covenant. And he gives us the description and the reason why in verse 32 and 33 he said, basically, my words, my paraphrase, guys, y'all couldn't handle the old covenant. You kept on falling. You kept on turning around. You kept on rebelling. I'm going to give you a new covenant. And instead of it being on the outside like the law that you're obedient to, 
I'm going to bring this new covenant. I'm going to place it in your heart on the inside. Now, who do you think he's talking about? One of the darkest days of Israel's history, when all they want is escape, God calls them not only to endure, but to embrace. And in this day, when he says, okay, it's not going to be seven days, it's going to be 70 years, in the midst of that, he gives the greatest promise that we find in all the Old Testament. Guys, you've blown it over and over and over again. I'm going to make with you a new covenant. And his name is Jesus. So that your future doesn't depend on how good you were or bad you were. Because I'm going to provide one that was totally good and would live in your place. But more than that, die in your place. Here, here's the thing, guys. We are writing every day on our children's hearts. And days will come and months will come and years will go by and they will become young men and young women and they will become mo- uh, mothers and fathers. They will become husbands and wives and they will have grandchildren. I pray that they have grandchildren and so that I can be a grandfather. And there will be a day that I'm no longer there. Or my kids will say, remember when dad used to always say? I may have shared this with you before. One of the times my my daughter was so frustrated with me because she didn't get her way. And I wanted to give in, but I held my ground. Dad, you always have a scripture for everything. hey, write that on my tombstone, okay, guys? That God's word is sufficient for us. Preacher, your mamma had a saying, and, and you know, Ricky is incredible with his talents, and uh, you, you've made some of those sayings that your grandma said in, into little signs, and, and we keep this right on our, in our kitchen table on, on the counter there because it's so good. And, and I can only imagine your mamma saying this to you. Have you prayed about it? That is not what you wanted to hear, was it? You wanted Mamma to say, escape. But what was Grandma saying? Sweetheart, you need to endure, and you may even have to embrace this. And now she's in glory. And you have a legacy of this for the rest of your life. Have you prayed about it? At times, you embrace this, I imagine, and at other times, it's like... Rats. You're writing on your kids' hearts, guys. What what are you going to write? What are you going to write? We're not going to get it right every time. We're going to mess up probably more than we do it right. But if you drive them back to God and His Word... When they start hearing the two different voices, because there will always be this other voice, they may want to listen to that voice. They may be drawn to that voice. But I pray that they hear your voice in the midst of that, whether they are in a grown adult, whether you are dead and gone from this world, and they would hear. Well, remember, Dad used to always say, trust God. Trust God. This isn't simple 
simplistic parenting. This is hard parenting. This is really hard parenting. Because it means that, in, in a way, we have to release our children to the sovereignty of God. Because there's going to be times, if you just leave it up to me, I will say escape for my kids every time. Let's pray. Father, how difficult. Father, there's a part of me that rejects this. A part of my flesh, a part of my, what I think is a loving father, myself, that I reject, that I, I do not want my kids to suffer. Father, will you broaden my perspective, Father? You, will you give me understanding? Will you give me the ability, Father, to see things from a heavenly perspective, from an eternal perspective? Because, Father, my, my heart just sees the crisis. And I would do anything to save them from the crisis. Father, today, will you, will you just help us as parents? We're really not all that good at this. All we know is that we just love our kids. And when you allow that one truth, that one fact, Father, draw us to believe you, that you are a loving Heavenly Father, and that you love us, even when you ask us to endure and to embrace Even though we want to get on the next bus to Jerusalem and you say 70 years, go build houses, plant gardens, have children and grandchildren and pray for these very people that have you captive. Because, Father, that is so far from our nature. So, Father, we, we pray for some Noah and the ark moments where you just allow us to escape from, from the hard times. But if you ask us to weather the storm, help us to keep these promises in mind. We love you, Father. We just want to be children that have peace in the midst of even the rain and the storms. Thank you that you've promised that you'll be there with us. You'll lead the way and you'll love our kids. We pray all this in the hope of that new covenant, Christ himself. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.com dot org or find us on Facebook.